Welcome back to Dark Habits. How's it going, Gudrun? Hi, I'm doing okay. Just the thing lately is that I have like this black cat, you know, <laughs> Mr. Pantalaimon. <laughs> and he's feeling very much like his own man. Mm. He's being very independent. Not Strong, independent man doesn't need no women. No, he's not sitting on mommy's lap anymore. <gasps> <laughs> and that's not his habit. A scandalo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So he doesn't totally doesn't need you anymore. No, he's no. so he, over you. Yeah, he's outgrown me. Oh yeah. well, you know, I mean, what you know, he's just found his own reality that does not include you. So you can just fuck right off. Yeah, he's no longer a mommy's boy. Oh, uh, mama's boy, no longer mama's boy. Yes, we've been having our own cat drama, as you can only imagine, with a house that currently hosts nine cats because we had two little babies foster babies who were adopted they were the cutest yeah yeah i called that we called them um we called the boy was mr baby and he was adorable and his sister was called little miss summer titties <laughs> because baby brother was into sucking on her titties like in that beaches <laughs> song and so she and she loved to show her little her little belly to us to be petted and so and her titties were totally on display so that's why her name was little miss summer titties <laughs> i think she's gonna have another name though i think they both are actually and our the big man of our house ginger roger had who is diabetic we have two diabetic cats had a hypoglycemic emergency the other night at 11. So we got to go to the emergency vet. It was horrifying and traumatizing, but he's he's on the mend. He's eating all the foods and the vets love him because he is just the king of all fucking cats. Oh yeah, he's the man. He's a whole mood. Yeah. He's a whole concept. We're his women's and he tolerates us at best. <laughs> so I feel you. I feel you yeah. on the stoic man in your life who yeah. doesn't need the, anything no, from you. No, no. Yeah, I just get fucked, you know? Who needs women's? <laughs> not not our men's. Not our men's. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we love them so much. Yeah, yeah. he's my darling little boy. And I'm his godmother. Yeah. Yeah. And Gudrun has even cat sat roger in a very small apartment mm -hmm. and this cat can leave massive shit bombs <laughs> like to the point that i've even had get like a reflex that i almost vomited so <laughs> i mean you you've done your part for ginger roger yeah. and for us yeah so yeah um so yeah so today i am gonna be t it is the beginning of virgo season and I'm going to be talking about Virgo, 
some astrology, and I'm also going to be talking about a, a notable queer Virgo I've chosen to focus on for this episode mm-hmm. by the name of Marsha P. Johnson. Woohoo! Woohoo! Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! So here we go. Okay. So, uh, Virgo season is upon us, and uh, it begins on August 23rd about, and usually lasts until September 22nd-ish. Virgo is the sixth star sign of the zodiac. It's a mutable earth sign, and... Virgo sons are famous for being grounded, stable, and hardworking. Uh, now, just to be fair, just to get it out there, it we can't really, you know, limit people just by their sun mm-hmm. signs. This is simplified in a way. And also, all of us have all of the signs within us, which is why this is also a season um, it's a season that is based around balancing, manifesting, and grounding because Virgo is a mutable sign, and mutable signs disperse skills. Virgo is per- particularly seeks out a wide array of skill sets to serve at its behest throughout life or your behest throughout life if you are a Virgo son. Uh, and Virgos are perfectionists, typically mm. speaking. So um, a lot of Virgo sons, of course, this is again generalized. It's not just you are only this way because you have a Virgo son. That's not that's not how astrology works. But if we're going to just go about the sun sign itself and what is representative in a Virgo life. Perfectionism um, for Virgos means finding life through perfecting their craft. Uh, Therefore, Virgo season brings with it the entry into autumn, where we begin to buckle down, get to work, and sort ourselves out for the remainder of the year. Um... Virgo is symbolized by the Virgin, the symbol of those who belong to themselves. So there's a lot of talk about what is the Virgin. And instead of relegating it to a patriarchal thing, it's about self-ownership and self-determination more than being pure. Mm. And... um, this self-determinism is very essential to the Virgo spirit. Virgo is the priestess who heals, and this aids in paths of homeopathic healing, for example. Uh, Virgo is an expert at understanding the nuances of different systems, and this sun sign endeavors to employ energy toward um those that pinpoint, clarify, and specify the problem and its solution. So Virgo sons are ruled by Mercury, and one of those people is Freddie fucking Mercury. (laughs) 
So I think he was intentional when he taught, decided on his stage mm -hmm. name. Mercury is the messenger that disperses information. Mercury is typified by objective, rational thought, and is also adaptable, flexible, and responsive. Mercury takes on much responsibility as it rules over learning experiences, uh, telecommunications, computing, writing, information, language. And in the tarot, the hermit represents Virgo in addition to the page, four, five, and six of pentacles. One of the key traits of the hermit is humility, of which Virgo is known for. The hermit is a reflective figure who has retreated back from day-to-day -day society to analyze and shine a light on the correct path to take. The Page of Pentacles represents Virgo, learning the spiritual path through servitude. The Pentacles depict the journey from internal spiritual reflection, nourishment, and then to abundance. Virgo's journey is the mastery of self-nourishment, tending to loved ones and the understanding of reciprocity there is a certain purity and innocence to Virgo, and the hermit's monk-like existence allows them to view the world with newfound childlike wonder. Virgo is also known as being resourceful, and the hermit lives off the land, guided by wisdom and earned, er, that is earned in solitude. So sun and Virgos feel most alive when they are devoting their attention to perfecting their work. They're never ones to rest on their laurels and settle for good enough. Mutable Virgo finds meaning in processing and applying knowledge and shines bright when they better perfect their craft. As Virgo rules the sixth house of legacy, lineage, and service, they are thought of as the humanitarians of the Zodiac. This can lead to a tendency to prioritize others' needs over their own. Finding an even balance between honoring their own authenticity and needs as well, as key, as well is key for those with this sign. So they're earth signs, and earth signs are most in their element when they are accomplishing things that have a tangible purpose in the here and now. And Virgo is certainly no exception. When these serious souls are hyper-focused on a job, they block out all other distractions. Sun and Virgos typically feel most at ease when working productively on something that's important to them. And Mercury's influence on Virgo results on them moving from one subject to the next, all the while getting caught up in amplifying every perceived flaw that they make, perfectionism. A distorted Virgo sun expels all energy on micromanaging while being hypercritical of everything. This results in Virgo missing out on all the wonderful surprises that come from creative spontaneity while over-focusing on minute. So that's kind of the negative points here. Virgo's perfectionist tendencies frequently result in them being their own worst enemy. 
it comes as no surprise that they face monumental challenges in trying to quiet their own inner critic. Virgos must seek out fulfilling opportunities to pour themselves into in order to feel of use. They can learn to curb the influence of the constant inner critic by focusing on being of service to a cause or belief that they hold in great value. Engaging in small daily rituals helps stave off Virgo's perpetual performance anxiety. By creating a system of order, they will find relief in balancing their physical, mental, and emotional flows of energy. By focusing on small achievable goals, their anxiety will be lessened. Overall, it is essential that Sun and Virgos pay attention to their energy storehouses. While not all Virgos are necessarily introverts, it is beneficial for all to understand their limits and how to give of themselves sparingly. Taking time out to replenish those reserves will help Sun in Virgos to cleanse and clear in order to get back to business. So all of these things, of course, are applied to Virgo, but um, they also can be applied to ourselves because these are all the major themes that we face during this particular time of year. Um, so this is more just to give a general idea of where we're at right now, um, who, what is the essence of Virgo, and you know the things that we will be encountering this time of year. So it's really important just to remember that, um, you know, don't get overwhelmed. A lot of stuff is kicking up right now, back to school. A lot of people who can afford to go on vacations are returning to work, um, things like that. So it's a lot of new beginnings. And also this can be quite a time full of anxiety. Um, so back to Virgo suns. So some of my favorite Virgo suns. We have Greta Garbo, uh, born September 18th, 1905. Margaret Sanger, she was the American birth control activist, sex educator, writer, and nurse, who was born September 14th, 1879. Of course, the queen of, well, I don't know, we're going to talk about Marshall P. Johnson. I was going to say the queen of fucking everything, but <laughs> Freddie fucking Mercury... September 5th, 1946, I Miss Him Every Day, Beyonce, September 4th, 1981, Mary Shelley, the author Ooh. of Frankenstein, August 30th, 1797, uh, Ai Weiwei, who is a very amazing visual artist, born August 28th, 1957, and the focus of my childhood crush and heartbreak, River Phoenix, August 23rd, 1970. We wish she could have lived longer. And speaking of people who we also wish could have lived longer, today I will be sharing the story of our queer queen, Virgo, sunshine herself, Marsha P. Johnson. 
So, Marsha P. Johnson was born August 24th, 1945, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, as Malcolm Michaels Jr. She was the fifth of seven children to Malcolm Michaels Sr., a World War II veteran, an assembly line worker for GM, and Alberta Claiborne, a housekeeper. They were a family of faith, and Marcia grew up in the Mount Taman African Methodist Episcopal Church. Her faith would be a big part of her life. She started keeping a saint altar at home and always had one every place she lived for the rest of her life. Marcia identified as female at a very young age and started dressing in feminine attire by the time she was five. But it was the 50s, and her parents were not happy about it. She stopped dressing in feminine clothing for a while because the boys next door used to, as she said, get fresh with her. Um, she, so I also want to put in a note here, which I did not at the beginning. I'm sorry. So this will involve, um, I want to just put out a content warning. We will be speaking about sexual violence. There will be, uh, talk of homophobic violence, trans violence, and, um, some rough language. So take care if any of those things are going to be a problem for you. Um, so getting back into things. So, um, as I was saying, she, um, was harassed by the boys next door and she was sexually assaulted when she was 12 by one of them. After this happened, she claimed that she figured that was just how life worked. And she said that being gay was like a dream rather than a reality. And her mother told her that being gay was like being lower than a dog. She avoided sexual activities throughout her teen years as both a consequence of the rape and the religious objections that were imposed on her. However, her mother, Alberta, also seemed to gradually accept Marcia's sexual orientation of a kind, encouraging her to find a billionaire boyfriend or husband to take <laughs> care of her. So, you know, I take that as it may. I guess she kind of at one point was just like, okay, this is who my, my child is. Um, but it was always tenuous with her family and even watching some, a, a documentary about her, um, some of her brothers and sisters and nephews were interviewed. They were pretty okay, but they also regularly referred to her with male pronouns mm -hmm. and, Sometimes they did switch, but it seemed like they're still not too comfortable about it. But I think that some of the family members obviously are trying. Um, so be that, take that with it what you will. Um, anyway, she made it through high school and upon graduation from Edison High School in 1963, she left for New York City with just $15 and a bag of clothes. She was homeless when she got to New York and she slept in movie theaters when she first arrived in the city. 
1966, she eventually got a job waiting tables and she began hanging out in Greenwich Village with um, sex workers and gender non-conforming people near the Howard Johnson Steakhouse <laughs> on 6th Avenue and 8th Street. <laughs> Howard Johnson Steakhouse will become an important detail here. Mm -hmm. So this is why I'm saying it. I think they're still around. I think, like, they were a thing. I know my family had at least a few fights at a Howard Johnson's <laughs> in the 60s because my family could not go to restaurants in the 1960s without having a fight. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure a few family fights in the Goodell family happened at a Howard Johnson Steakhouse. This is not about us, though. Anyway, so at this time, we're going to talk about some um, language, and when we go into historical um, figures who are queer, language is always something that needs to really be addressed. So at the time, terms such as transvestite and drag week were self-identifiers. These labels resonated with Marcia, who was on a journey of self-discovery. She still going by Malcolm at the time, she began to start presenting as her authentic self. And when she came out, she said, my life has been built around sex and gay liberation and being a drag queen, as well as sex work. Uh, Marsha identified as gay, a transvestite, and a queen, sometimes calling herself a drag queen or a street queen. This was the parlance of the time up until really very recently. Um, when discussing her, these terms will come up used purely in context of the time. However, um, it is also worth noting that many of these terms probably shouldn't be used in a modern context unless otherwise specified as an individual identifier. Today, many find the term transvestite problematic as its original use was a psychiatric term for cross-dressers, which was a term for heterosexual men who got a sexual thrill from dressing up in female clothing. So it was very pathologized. So nowadays it's basically considered outdated and derogatory, though there are uh, elders within the community who do still use this term to describe themselves. Uh, Susan Stryker, the pro a professor of human gender and sexuality studies at the University of Arizona, has said that Johnson's gender expression could perhaps more accurately be called gender nonconforming, as Johnson never self-identified as transgender, but the term was not broadly used while she was alive. When referring to Marcia and her peers, you will find that I will refer to them as being trans or by the self-identifiers they used for themselves. Um, in addition, the term gay, as I'm going to use it, as it, and as it was used historically, and as it is used in this space, is used with the intent that it refers to the greater LGBTQIA plus community, unless otherwise specified, and will be used synonymously with the word queer. Hmm. It was, that was the way it was. It still is. We still do, to some extent, still say this sometimes, some of us anyway. So we'll go. So that's, that's just to be clear. 
Initially, Marsha went by the name Black Marsha, later changing it to her drag name, Marsha P. Johnson. She used Johnson in homage, here we we go, (laughs) to the aforementioned Howard Johnson's on 42nd Street, with the P, which is amazing, standing for pay it no mind, (laughs) which is a phrase she used sarcastically when she was questioned about her gender. Pay it no mind. I mean, I think it's a lot cuter than fuck off, which Mm -hmm. I like to use, but Marsha fuck off Johnson doesn't really (laughs) sound so great. I think she was classier than I ever could be. So, hey, housing was precarious for Marsha, as it is for many trans people uh, now, today even, um, and especially back then. Um, Oftentimes she was homeless and her general means of financial income was through sex work. She spent a lot of time on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village. Lots of queer street people hung out there. She often slept under tables in the flower district and collected the cast off flowers to make into beautiful ornate flower crowns accented by strings of gems. Marcia was a tall, slim person and she loved to accentuate her height with her elaborate floral crowns. She often wore flowing gowns and anything shiny. Her regal presence on the scene was notable and her effervescence made her shine. She was kind, sweet, witty, and bright. It is worth searching out footage of her just to witness how brilliant she was with a turn of phrase, as well as a natural passion for equality and human compassion. She's truly spectacular to listen to. Uh, Her natural charisma and caring nature attracted everyone to her. She had people around her all the time, whether they be other queens, trans women, or runaway throwaway street kids. Marcia started performing as a drag queen. She never had money, and one of the reasons she didn't pursue drag further was because of it. She said she never really took drag seriously because she didn't have the money to. And this is still a thing today. When you hear about the price it costs to launch a career in drag, and for example, like what queens on Drag Race have said before about the simple cost of getting on Mm -hmm. the show itself, Um, there's a lot of classist prohibitions when it comes to being able to be a drag queen. So even back then that was the Mm -hmm. case. Um, so Christopher street in the West village was, as we said, was her stomping ground and home. It is and was also home to stone, the Stonewall Inn. In the 1960s, members of the LGBTQIA plus community were not allowed to be served in bars. If a person came into a bar and were sized up as being queer, they were not served and usually treated with some form of scorn or violence or both. Um, Underground gay bars were constantly raided because at that time being gay was illegal. You weren't allowed to dance with members of the same sex in public and this would lead to arrest. If someone was found to be wearing clothes of what 
would be de determined the opposite gender, they would face sexual deviancy charges. Uh, many butch dykes and trans men of the time always kept at least three pieces mm -hmm. of female attire on at all times in order to not be charged with this crime. Um, that was a law, three pieces, three pieces of what is of feminine attire, whatever that may be called. Um, bars could be fined or completely shut down simply for serving a drink to a queer person. Wow. And this was the standard. So because of the fact that us queers had to really, really hide back then, um, there was, you know, a market for uh, LGBT spaces and the mafia saw the need for the LGBTQIA plus community to congregate. And most importantly, they saw the dollar signs. Um, in the time leading up to the Stonewall Uprising, virtually all queer bars in the city were run by the Mafia. The Stonewall Inn was owned by the notorious Genovese or Genovese family. It was a private club that gave you two drink tickets and you signed a guest book to get in. Um, this was all kind of security thing. Um, this was all a mere formality and it quickly became a popular gay spot. And at that time, Drag queens weren't welcome at the gay bars. However, at the Stonewall, drag queens were allowed, albeit they were segregated, which is mind-blowing. So, while the Stonewall Inn did exceptionally allow drag queens, many of whom would, by today's uh, parlance, be considered trans, mm -hmm. gender ambiguous, and femme men, because we also they also any man who was too femme mm. was also not highly sought after, and it, this is still the case today in the queer scene. Mm. Like no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Yeah. That has been going on for a very long time, unfortunately. Um, so they were relegated to the back of the bar, away from the main dance floor where you came in. And, which was predominantly gay men and a few lesbians. So um, it was basically a Rosa Parks kind of situation mm -hmm. back of the bar. Mm -hmm. So um, they were allowed in grudgingly. Um, in fact, there was a limit of two queens allowed in at a time. So it quickly became the big gay bar to go to. Um, however, too many femmes get the fuck out. Mm -hmm. So shitty. And in many ways, the Stonewall Inn was considered safe because the crooked cops would inform the mafia when the raids uh, were going to happen. And they would plan accordingly and they would either close the club on that night or close it early or have previous plans so no one gets caught mm -hmm. other times so sometimes they would flash the lights to notify patrons if there was a raid and people would flee uh so here we go june 28th 1969 police showed up unannounced more raids had been happening all over the city the city's queer community had seen the closures of several popular bars 
and was feeling hounded and completely fed up with the constant harassment by the cops. The police had stopped relying on tip-offs from the mafia. The mafia was now driven towards blackmailing wealthy closeted gays, which was more lucrative than the sales from alcohol at the gay bars. So since the bond between the cops and the mob had been severed, the cops were now drilling down on queer establishments across the city. And Stonewall was not the first one to be raided and shut down. Um, So this is a kind of a well-known legend. Uh, So one factor that many say played into the civil disobedience that followed was the death of actress Judy Garland. Mm Her funeral had taken place the day before, and the singer had long been and remains to be, if you ever see Jinx Monsoon's impersonation of her do it, it's amazing, a queer icon. However, according to Olivia Waxman from her article in Time magazine, quote, Charles Kaiser's 1997 book, The Gay Metropolis, has been credited as one source that popularized the theory that heightened emotions over Judy Garland may have contributed in a significant way to the outcry at Stonewall Inn hours later. No one will ever know for sure which was the most important reason for what happened next, the freshness in their minds of Judy Garland's funeral or the example of all the previous rebellions of the 60s, the civil rights revolution, the sexual revolution, and the psychedelic revolution, each of which had punctured gaping holes and crumbling traditions of passivity, puritanism, and bigotry, he wrote. One of the several controversial aspects of the 2015 movie Stonewall, if there's there are so many. <laughs> I don't even get started. Was the fact that it promoted the idea that Garland's funeral led to the Stonewall Uprising. Even the 2017 Magnetic Field song, it's a great song, just saying. 69 Judy Garland starts off the first brick the drag king threw to draw blood from the boys in blue, said, Here lies Judy Garland on it. It flew through historic air. It's a fucking great song. <laughs> Let's just give them that. Anyway, but experts on LGBT history say there isn't enough to prove that Judy Garland's funeral specifically fueled the Stonewall Uprising. In fact, this rumor may have started from a sarcastic opinion piece penned by a heterosexual man commenting on the events of Stonewall because doesn't everything. <laughs> Either way, that night was the breaking point, and many contributing factors likely played a role beyond just really feeling fed the fuck up with being treated like second-class citizens, which is my opinion kind of where it, what it was. Um, people were lined up and demanded to show their IDs. Those in drag, non, uh, non-gender conforming attire, or without IDs were the first to be arrested. Many weren't out to their families, probably most of them, and were terrified of being outed. The women who had male genitalia refused to do a check of their genitals in the restroom. And guess what's going on today in fucking Florida? Mm. How much we have progressed. 
people around the area and people who were at the bar started to fight back against the police. While people were waiting outside for a wagon to haul them away, those being held for arrest, as well as others outside, began to push back against the cops. Police became outnumbered. People started singing, we shall overcome and and yelling gay power. So this is another person who will be called, who will be covered in our astrological queer notable people mm-hmm. <laughs> that just rolled off the tongue right very well. <laughs> Storme de la Marie, a biracial lesbian known as the guardian of the lesbians <laughs> in the village, was arrested. And if anyone could serve not the one energy, it was fucking Storme. <laughs> Don't fuck with Storme. This is a side note to Marsha's story, but it needs to be said. As they pushed her through the crowd, she fought back. She got free several times. She fought four cops swearing and shouting for over 10 minutes by herself. Bleeding from the head, she yelled, she looked out to the crowd and she yelled, why don't you guys do something? And then the crowd surged, overpowering the police. Later, when interviewed about Stonewall, and I find this very important, Storme said, it was a rebellion. It was an uprising. It was a civil rights disobedience. It wasn't no damn riot. So there's a lot of stuff out there that is like hashtag Stonewall was Mm -hmm. a riot, or the first Pride was a riot. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, maybe rethink that. I don't know. I, I like it, but at the same time, this... When I hear this, it kind of makes me think, why don't we start talking about a civil rights disobedience? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, let's listen to our elders. Mm-hmm. That's just the way I look at it. So, badass Stormy got things really going, um, just from this incident. So the crowd started throwing pennies at the cops, yelling, pay them off, which was in reference to their mob ties. The crowd overpowered the police, who ran for cover, taking shelter inside the Stonewall Inn. So the crowd overturns cop cars, they throw bottles, and someone tries to set the building on fire. Because, you know, no one knows if it was the police or the protesters who did it, but everyone survived, so no harm, no foul. Near the inn, there was a construction site with piles of bricks, which people then started hurling. And no one knows who threw the first brick, but it seemed to be everyone at the fucking same time because everything had just come to a head. You can never tell. It's there's this whole thing mythologizing who threw the mm-hmm. first brick. It's let's just it's like focus on something else. Anyway, so 23-year-old Marsha hears what's going on, and then she goes uptown to get her friend Sylvia Rivera who is another person who we will be talking about because <laughs> <laughs> the, there are so many people involved in this who are amazing. So they arrive at the Stonewall around 2 a.m., which was about an hour since the insurgents began. And at that point, it was still on fire. The girls joined in, and according to the eyewitnesses, Flame Queens, which at that time, Flame Queens meant Femme Queens, Hustlers and gay street kids were the instigators throwing projectiles because, frankly, they had nothing to lose. And they were also the most victimized by the police. Mm -hmm. 
Another said, all I could see about who was fighting was that it was transvestites and they were fighting furiously. It has been reported that the crowd formed a kick line, like a chorus line, mm -hmm. with a group of queens singing and kicking while keeping the police forces at bay. <laughs> I think it's pretty true, but let's just say it is anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think it is actually true. They did do that. And it was pretty legendary because it was only the first time that cops had actually been forced back mm -hmm. at, a riot, at what was called a riot. Mm -hmm. And it was by the gays. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 13 people were arrested. Some ended up being hospitalized as well as four cops. The bar was destroyed. Rumors started flying around about who started the fight. And some blame was bizarrely put on a student Democrat group. <laughs> <laughs> like that's giving the Democrats way too much credit. I don't even back then, you know, Dems are not the most in your face, I would say. <laughs> and I, and that was just, and of course, not bizarrely on the black Panthers because you know, black, <laughs> but the word was out internationally on what had occurred that night in Greenwich village and more gay liberation actions began to pop up globally in the following year, not immediately, but in the following year. So, um, for five days, Following the resistance at Stonewall, um, there were marches, gatherings, and actions. And overnight, it had become that people who had to hide in the shadows were suddenly out. The LGBTQIA community had taken over Christopher Street. And Marsha came back on the second night with her friends. I love her friends' names, and I'm sure they were also as, just as amazing. Zaza Nova and Jackie Hormona. <laughs> Jackie Hormona. <laughs> Chef's kiss. Marsha climbed a light post, dropped a bag full of bricks on top of the car window, smashing it. <laughs> and she was, she was living. So Marsha and her friends joined the chorus line against the police again. And, um, you know, just, totally went right in, you know, they were all there fighting. As they mentioned earlier, the trans femmes were like mm -hmm. kicking fucking ass. And um, however, of course, not all of the community was into the Stonewall Uprising. The oldest great gay group, the Mattachine Society, openly criticized the violence as well as made classist arguments against the participants. And the village voice viciously criticized the events using horribly homophobic slurs, which is really interesting because it was sort of considered like the unofficial gay magazine, mm -hmm. but it was unofficial and it was just, they said some really shitty things. Um, so on June 28th, 1970, exactly a year after the uprising, the Christopher Street Liberation Day is held, marking the beginning of what we have globally known as come to know as Pride. There are marches in Los Angeles and Chicago, uh, London, Paris, and West Berlin events follow as Pride becomes a worldwide event. And this time, the Village Voice writes glowingly about gay liberation. Imagine. 
so um Marsha and Sylvia um were passionate advocates for gay liberation as it was called and were at the center of things they continue to really fight many queer organizations organizations blossomed after Stonewall. Marsha joined the Gay Liberation Front and became active in the Drag Queen Caucus. There should always be a Drag Queen Caucus <laughs> in everything. I just need to say, bring it back, especially for the next election. <laughs> she marched in the first Gay Pride Rally, which, which was then called the Christopher Street Day Liberation Rally after the Stonewall Uprising. So she participated in sit-ins and other actions with various groups. And she decided to join Sylvia's STAR group. So STAR was an acronym that stood for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. And STAR quickly became active in various gay liberation events. They were a big, a big presence. In 1973, the organizers of the Christopher Street Parade didn't want her and other trans women marching at the front, so they were relegated to the back of the parade. They stated that they didn't want drag queens at their marches as they were giving them a bad name. Yet again, racism and classism shits on the parade. And this, of course, was far from acceptable for the likes of Johnson and Rivera, who made their way to the front of the fucking parade, front and center. So they created their own fucking parade. Mm -hmm. And I like to also just say, from the get-go, the pride parades have always been hugely problematic. Yeah. From the very get-go. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Um... And it's sad. It's bullshit. Anyway, so um, Marsha and Sylvia decide to go on to create Star House, which was a housing shelter for queer trans uh, street kids. They had no money. So they made a deal with a mafia guy named Michael Umbars to get the place. And this, again, all just goes to show how much the gay community and the mob were connected. They had to be because they couldn't go through regular mm -hmm. avenues because trying to source housing through the conventional route just wasn't an option. Um, not for people in their situation. Um, it wasn't possible. And it wasn't possible for many queer people and the mob provided. So there you go. So this fucker owned the dilapidated this dilapidated building and they got cheap rent in exchange for fixing it up, which they renovated. And at star house, they were able for a time to house transgender youth, give them small amounts of money, advocate their right for their rights and feed them. Marcia thought of herself as the assistant to Sylvia on the star project and always made sure to credit her for it. Sylvia thought of Marcia as her mother, she was the first person to take her under her wing when she'd arrived on the streets of New York at 11 years old. Residents called Marcia the Queen Mother, and she became their drag mother and referred to them as her children, which, don't worry, it's just really sweet and not culty. It's cute. 
This has since become parlance in queer spaces, particularly in the drag scene. Um, unfortunately, Starhouse was short-lived because asshole Mike kicked them out for not being able to pay the rent, and the money Sylvia and Marcia made turning tricks wasn't enough. So they were attempting to house queer youth while um, making money off of sex work. I mean, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, Marcia struggled with her mental health. Um, she spent time in psychiatric hospitals, especially in, through the 70s. Um, she was going through severe PTSD from all the activist work she'd been involved in over the years and the subsequent arrests and violent encounters with police and bigots, both really, um, one and the same. Um, anyway, she said that at one point she'd stopped counting the number of times she was arrested. She'd even been shot. And the active, but the activism kept her going. So even in her darkest times, um, the activism really kept her going. And she joined this group, Hot Peaches, which was a theater group focused on queer culture. And they traveled doing these shows and she got to go to Europe and travel around, which is really cool. And in 1975, she posed for Andy Warhol in a Polaroid based series called Ladies and Gentlemen. However, she wasn't particularly famous during her lifetime. However, she became a, like a living legend. She was a person about town and um, this is, yeah. Anyway, so once she and a friend went to an art gallery so she could show a friend the picture that Andy mm -hmm. Warhol took and they were kicked out based on the fact that they were obviously trans straight mm -hmm. women because of course. And um, I think that in the 80s, in a lot of ways, um, things picked up for Marcia. Um, so she was a living legend by that point. And she rode in the front of the 1980 Pride Parade in mm -hmm. the front car, mm -hmm. which as she deserved, in the place she deserved to be. And between 1980 and the time of her death, she lived with her good friend, Randy Wicker, um, when Randy's partner, David, was dying from AIDS, Marcia became his primary caregiver. This led to her caring for various friends and victims of the virus. She continued to dive into work in grassroots organizations, especially to assist in the AIDS epidemic, continuing her care and advocacy for victims, as well as being involved in ACT UP. On July 6, 1992, her body was found floating in the Hudson River, right off the Christopher Street piers. She was 46 years old. Police instantly ruled it as a suicide, but all her friends and peers said that was impossible and that Marcia had absolutely not been suicidal in the days and weeks leading up to her death. People tried to say that she had been giving all her things away, but that was what Marsha had always done. If someone complimented an article of clothing she was wearing, she oftentimes would give it to them. And that was just her giving mm -hmm. nature. She was really amazing. Police didn't investigate the death as it should have been. And it's safe to say that Marsha, that had Marsha not been a trans woman of color, 
the investigation would have been taken more seriously. Which, again, we still see it happening today. Um, there are many conflicting stories leading up to the last time she was seen. The last time Randy Wicker, her roommate, saw her was July 2nd. Others say they last saw her on July 4th. There is an eyewitness account that Marcia was seen in the early morning hours of July 6th that said she seemed scared and was running towards the West Village piers while being followed by two men where she was later found dead. Randy blamed himself. Uh, and the reason why was at that time and leading up to that time, he was trying to contain, to gain control uh, with the others of the Christopher Street Festival Committee. This committee ran a portion of events at all the gay pride events. So Randy thought a lot of the people that ran the committee, and he was bright, were embezzling a lot of money, and he even hired a PI to investigate. And he deduced that it was being run in a totally crooked manner and was directly tied to mob affiliations. And again, here we go with the mob had long been linked to the LGBTQIA plus community, and this was yet another example of that connection. He later learned that there had been a threat made against him to leave two mobsters alone. In the documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, Randy finds out via Victoria Cruz, an elder trans rights advocate investigating Marsha's case, that this message for him was never received. The message basically said, tell Randy what happened to Marsha will happen to him if he doesn't leave Red and Jacques, the two mobsters, alone. The cause of Marsha's death was changed from drowning to undetermined causes. They said that she was definitely alive when she entered the water. Based on the eyewitness testimony, it is highly plausible she was chased into the water. At the time, the docks were in a state of disrepair, with many loose boards scattered everywhere. The only mark on her body was an abrasion on her head that didn't appear to be the main cause of death. However, in my opinion, and, you know, mm -hmm. take with this what you will, that could have been caused by someone using, say, a slab of wood to keep her underwater until mm -hmm. she drowned. Um Marsha was cremated and a long funeral procession through the streets of the West Village made its way to the piers where her ashes were released to the water. And another amazing trans rights advocate and artist, Anoni, um, also known for Anthony and Anthony Johnson's was at that event. And, they, and she has spoken a lot about how Marsha has inspired her. Um, in 2012, the case was reopened um, when Victoria Cruz was finally able to get the autopsy report, which she was met with a series of blockages to obtain. It, was, it wasn't complete. She went over everything with Dr. Michael Bodden. Um, there was a lot of discoloration on Marsha's body which points uh, to a body laying in a certain position for an extended period of time. 
water also speeds this up and there were hemorrhages in many areas of the brain. Uh, Baden said he doesn't think it was a violent attack because there were no defining marks on her body. However, this is based on if the autopsy had been handled correctly, which is hard to determine. Did she drown because she was being chased or did she just want to complete suicide? A witness who saw the body, bless you again, <laughs> a witness who saw the body said there was a hole in her head. And Baden explains that that could have been due to floating debris and faster deterioration due to the water being warmer because of the summer heat. And this wasn't noted in the autopsy. However, the autopsy isn't complete. And friends said that leading up to her death, Marcia was becoming increasingly nervous of the mob. And one eyewitness close to the time of Marcia's death described her getting into the car with three Italian men, which was one of the last eyewitness testimonies other than the other spotting of her running towards the piers. There was equal speculation that it was members of the police themselves. Either way, it's likely to speculate that both were connected. Marsha's legacy lives on today. She has become an icon for queer, especially trans liberation. The latest generation has particularly raised the banner high on her behalf. The Marsha P. Johnson Institute that protects and defends black transgender people um, has been created and her story matters and it matters that we share it no matter how many times that is. Um, but no story really does justice to this larger than life beautiful soul who we as a community are privileged to count amongst us. And um, I'm just going to close out with any time respectability politics, racist injustice, homophobia, and transphobia rear their heads. It's up to us to tackle it head on, to channel that Marcia spirit. And if anyone has the nerve to relegate trans and queer people, especially trans and queer people to the mar of color to the margins. It's up to us to take our rightful place at the front and make our own damn parade. And that's in honor of Marsha P. Johnson. May she rest in power. Mm. Nice. Wow. That was such a riveting tale. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I knew a bit about the history, especially mm -hmm. concerning the Stonewall riots, or not riots, but mm -hmm. <laughs> civil acts of disobedience, mm -hmm. but I didn't know her story that well, so mm. it was really nice to hear. Yeah, very interesting. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I had, um, I knew basically, you know, about Marsha P. Johnson um, going into this, but I learned a lot more. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm also, she was a very spiritual person. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was funny, it's funny because she, she would go to all types of religious uh, institutions, like to temples, to uh, different types of churches, and um, she said she wanted to cover all bases. Yeah. <laughs> and she had a really lovely, beautiful faith that I think is also very mystical. Mm -hmm. And she was, yeah, just an amazing person. Um, there's also one more thing. Oh, yeah, I should give sources for this. Um, 
So the sources I have for this are David France uh, from The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Uh, it's a film from Public Square Films made in 2017. Um, I also listened to an episode of uh, Morbid, The Life and Mysterious Death of Marsha P. Johnson, Daisy Egan podcast, uh, The Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, Marsha P. Johnson, Hard Work Being Beautiful, uh, Stonewall and Marsha P. Johnson on True Gay Crime, uh, Village AIDS Memorial, Marsha P. Johnson's connection to the Village AIDS Memorial, Olivia Waxman, Some People Think Stonewall Was Triggered by Judy Garland's Funeral, Here's Why Many Experts Disagree from Time Magazine, and Jeffrey Iovonone, I think I said that right, should Netflix viewers boycott the death and life of Marsha P. Johnson from media, medium.com. Um, one thing I want to say is while I was very happy to be able to watch the documentary by David France that's, that's on Netflix, there I would like to also point out that there is a big controversy about it. Um, it happened when it first premiered. I haven't seen the film because it's hard to find. I'm in Belgium. Um, which is called Happy Birthday, Marsha, uh, made by a trans woman. Um, and she has accused David Friends of stealing her material. Mm -hmm. And I want to point that out. Um, so if you want to watch The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, so um, in a way that is free and he doesn't get money from it, go ahead and do that. I still think it's really worth seeing. Um, but I do believe her. So... Uh, just consider mm -hmm. that a grain of salt, yet another trans woman being used. Mm -hmm. So that being said, yeah. Um, but yeah, I felt like I really learned a lot about her mm -hmm. and yeah. also about really more about Stonewall. Yeah. And queer history. And yeah, in general, mm -hmm. yeah, and a certain frame and time at that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, all of, and I was really fascinated learning more about Stonewall because mm -hmm. I, I thought I knew the story, mm -hmm. but there were a lot of, there was so much mythologizing behind Stonewall mm -hmm. and about who threw the first brick. And um, there's stories that Marsha was at Stonewall when the yes. raid happened, which yeah. wasn't the case. Um, so, and also stuff about Sylvia Rivera. And, mm -hmm. but one thing that does shine through is store, the accounts of Stormé Delivery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which has always been consistent. Um, and just because Sylvia and Marsha weren't there the moment it happened, mm -hmm. they were totally part of mm -hmm. the uprising and all the actions that followed. And they were, you know, they you didn't need to be there first yeah, yeah, to yeah, be yeah. part of it, you yeah. know? So, yeah. And, you know, I think it, it's interesting to hear kind of the elements of her Virgo-ness that come mm -hmm. through, like the way she was a caregiver and the way that she was such a um, an activist at her in her nature, um, and kind of you know just using these opportunities to really hold space for her community and how giving she was. So she's a true inspiration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, thanks for listening and see you again or actually hear you again soon. Bye. Bye. You can reach Dark Habits at darkhabitsmag, that's M-A-G, at gmail.com. You can visit our website at darkhabits.net. And you can visit us also on social media at Dark Habits on Facebook, at Dark Habits Mag, again, that's all one word, M-A-G, on Instagram, and that you can listen to our podcast on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to shout out to us, like, follow, and subscribe. Thanks again. Thank you.